A conversation with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and a new report outlines medical debt in Tennessee. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of October 14th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. This week on the episode, we've got a, a couple of heavy topics to discuss, uh, but first we're going to really uh, begin with the interview that I had last Friday with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was in Nashville to speak to a uh, conference of uh, religious counselors, essentially. Uh, this is the interview in its entirety. Thank you, first of all, for, for Joel, It's great us. to be with you. Uh, Nashville is home to the largest Kurdish community in the United States. Today, Kurds are gathered for a demonstration downtown uh, to show support for their counterparts overseas. What's your message to those in the Kurdish community here in Nashville, especially some who feel somewhat betrayed by the, the, the U.S. withdrawal from uh, northern Syria? It's great to be here in Nashville, and uh, I appreciate the question. Uh, what they should understand is this administration has been incredibly supportive of the Kurds, not only in Syria, but the Kurdish people in Iraq and uh, other places around the world as well. Uh, you'll recall now, goodness, two and a half years ago when we came into office uh, in this very region, ISIS was running free, that caliphate that governed and extended, collected taxes, ran schools in that very Kurdish region in Syria, as well as in the Kurdish region in western Iraq as well. Uh, this administration came in and worked with our Kurdish uh, friends, and we crushed it. We crushed the caliphate. We created space for the Kurds to no longer have to suffer under the threats uh, from ISIS and radical Islamic terrorism. So I'm very proud of the support that we have provided to Kurds in the region. Uh, today, uh, even as I sit here, our teams, State Department teams are on the ground working to uh, convince uh, President Erdogan in Turkey that the invasion is not appropriate, that is, as the President said, it's a bad thing. And we're working to convince him uh, that moving into Syria in this way, putting at risk the lives of the Kurdish people and others in the region as well, Christians and other uh, ethnic minorities and religious minorities that it's a bad idea. And we're using every economic and diplomatic tool to convince them to cease this activity. Why exactly did the United States pull out? Turkey invaded. Turkey sent large forces across the, the border into Syria. We had, the United States had a small force there. On Sunday night, it was very clear Erdogan was gonna move in. We had uh, a handful, less than, less than 60 people in that space. Uh, they were no, they were no position to, uh, to remain there and keep them safe. And President Trump made the decision to bring them 20 or 30 kilometers back out of that space. But some people see this as a move that we are abandoning once allies, right? The Kurds that were there for us for so many years, uh, they feel uh, some sense of abandonment. What would you say to that? So we've worked with the Kurds. The United States has worked with the Kurds, not just in Syria, but all across the Middle East for an awfully long time. They've been good partners of ours in each of those places, and I'm very confident this administration will continue to support uh, these people who have been good friends of the United States of America. The action by the United States this week has led to a lot of rebukes from uh, Republicans, Democrats, including Senator Marsha Blackburn, who is a staunch ally of the president. Um, are there discussions, as Senator Blackburn has called for and others have called for, uh, you know, implementing sanctions against Turkey? Are there discussions about that? Yeah, president's made very clear. Uh, both publicly and uh, and directly to Turkey, uh, as well as through uh, State Department channels, uh, that there will be a real cost uh, to Turkey, to President Erdogan, if he continues down this path, that there'll be an economic cost, whether 
that cost is borne through sanctions or other tools, diplomatic tools. Um, I don't want to get out in front of the president, but uh, the Kurdish people here and the leadership in Turkey should understand that uh, we don't think what President Erdogan did was right, it's not proper, uh, and he needs to stop. I wanted to turn to, obviously, the other thing that's major in the news this week and the last couple of weeks has been Ukraine. Um, when you were originally asked by Martha Raddatz on ABC News about the, the phone call between the president and the, the president of Ukraine, uh, your response was basically that you didn't know anything about the whistleblower complaint at the time. Why didn't you volunteer that you were on that call until 10 days later? Yeah, I, I'd have to go back and look at it. I, I, unlike you and others, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time uh, retreading on old conversations. Sure. Uh, my recollection is she asked me about the whistleblower complaint. I responded to that. Uh, tried to answer the question accurately. I think I did. So on uh, yes, or two days ago, Wednesday, uh, PBS did an interview with you, and you said the phone call was wholly appropriate in your mind. Why do you think it's appropriate for the president of the United States to ask a foreign leader to investigate a political opponent? Well, that's not what he did. What did he do in your mind? He was having a conversation with the new president of Ukraine to talk about our relationship broadly and how we were going to move forward together. President Zelensky had campaigned on uh, taking down corruption inside of the Ukraine. It was the centerpiece of his campaign. And President Trump said, we'd, we'd like you to make sure you take a look at corruption and the history of corruption in your country in ways that it may have had an impact all across not only Ukraine, but Europe and the world. Uh, and the president was having a conversation about how we might move forward together, that we, we ask our friends and allies and partners and indeed our adversaries uh, to do things for us all the time. Uh, we ask them to engage in behaviors. I just talked about one. We're asking President Erdogan to engage in a set of behaviors that are more aligned with America's national security interests. Uh, it's completely common to do so. And I actually heard President Zelensky again say yesterday that he didn't feel pressured. I think the only ones who think Zelensky was pressured are a handful of folks in the media and a bunch of folks on Capitol Hill, the Democratic Party, who are trying to take down this president. I mean, you bring up the Democrats, and obviously there's been discussion about what they've been doing, um, the, the way they've been going about it. Uh, your office is essentially, what's your level of cooperation with the impeachment inquiry? Yeah, we're cooperating to the maximum extent required by law. Uh, I have an obligation to do that. And my team, this whole State Department team, our civil servants, our foreign service officers, our political appointees, everyone understands. I've made clear we're going to comply with the law every step of the way. I mean, I went back and looked at what you had said after uh, the Benghazi hearings where you wrote an op-ed for USA Today, actually, the parent company in my paper, where you said we make a note of the disappointing fact that the administration did not cooperate with our committee's investigation from the very beginning. In fact, they instructed from day one. It's our belief that many of these failures were the result of an administration's obsession with preserving a political narrative. In your assessment, is this current administration trying to, quote, preserve a political narrative and failing to cooperate with Congress when they're trying to do things like impeach those that are leading the impeachment effort or uh, trying to out a whistleblower? So I, uh, I'm very familiar with the details. I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, going back through history. Um, but we let every single witness have counsel from the agency that they worked for. We've been denied that. Uh, we've allowed those agencies to review transcripts of the hearings. The Democrats here have just chosen to behave in a way that's deeply inconsistent, that to compare the two processes is ludicrous on its face. We were fair. We treated witnesses with dignity. We gave them time. We coordinated with the agency to set the schedules. All the things that you do so that you get good government on behalf of the American people so that you deliver 
what the American people are demanding. We, we did those things when I was part of that committee. That's what we've been asking the uh, Democrats to do in the House of Representatives. We, we hope they'll begin to do that. In general, what's your assessment of the impeachment inquiry? I mean, do you, do you think it's absurd? You know, I came here today to Nashville to talk about religious freedom. Uh, people in Nashville care deeply about that, and it's what I intend to focus on while I'm here today. I, I was actually going to ask you about that. Um, you, you know, obviously you're here for the, the American Association of Christian Counselors. Why is re religious freedom such an important thing for you? You know, it's at the center of the American experiment. It's ingrained in our First Amendment of our Constitution. It's something I think sometimes as Americans we take for granted. We don't recognize that 80 plus percent of the people around the world uh, are in situations where they can't exercise their religious freedom, their own conscious. Uh, we think that's certainly bad for human dignity, and so the State Department is determined to try and improve that situation all around the world. And I wanted to come talk to this particular group today because they can be helpful as the State Department executes that mission. Do you see the administration's efforts to curtail refugee resettlement as not congruent with that same effort, though, that you, you're talking about religious liberties and saying how it's so important to have religious freedom, but many of these people that are trying to flee their countries are fleeing, you know, oppression from, uh, you know, whether it's human rights issues or whatever else. Uh, how are those two issues congruent? Oh, that's a great question. They're deeply congruent. Indeed, our, our, missions, our, our, our mission with respect to refugees and how we handle asylum cases is entirely consistent with our policy on religious freedom. Our mission set, the State Department's mission set, is to go to the root source of the problem to, these, these people want to stay in their homelands. They don't want to come to America, uh, right? They, they, want to be a, they want to live in their own home countries. And so our mission set is to put them in a position where they can, in fact, live their lives. Not only the economic issues or the security issues they face, but the, the issues that confront their fundamental human dignity. And so the State Department's mission all around the world is to create a set of conditions so that they can practice their faith in their homeland, in their home country, where their kids and their grandkids and their parents and grandparents all live. This, these are the things that are consistent with protecting religious freedom around the world. And this administration has been fantastic and successful in achieving that outcome. One last question I have for you. There are reports that your senior advisor, Michael McKinley's resignation is happening or uh, will be happening uh, because he says that, or there have been reports that say he failed to protect State Department employees from attacks and retaliation. What's your response to that? I, I protect every single State Department employee. It's one of the reasons that we've uh, asked the House of Representatives to stop their abusive prosecutions where they won't let State Department lawyers sit with our employees. That's not fair. No, we've, we have and we will continue to stand up. When the State Department employees are doing things right, when they're behaving in ways that are consistent with the rule of law and working on President Trump and America's mission, I'll always stand with them. I'll always have their back. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much, sir. This week on the podcast, we have the Sycamore Institute, which for those of you who haven't heard of them, they are a nonpartisan public policy center here in Nashville. We have with us Mandy Pellegrin. She's the policy director. And we have Laura Berlin. She's the executive director. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks. Good morning. So we are going to talk about a report that is releasing this week or has released this week called Medical Debt in Tennessee. Um, Will one of you just sort of give us a, an overview of what you all sought to do through this and what you all found? 
Sure. So this was about a one-year project uh, that we've been working on since last year. And what we really wanted to do was find out how common medical debt was in Tennessee, how it varied across Tennessee, um, what were some of the unique features of medical debt, how does it impact people's lives, and then um, to really come up with some options for state policymakers if they wanted to do something about it. So I guess my first question is, why did you guys spend a year on this? How did you all decide this was worthy of a year of research? Um, this is really the first report and first project in a new area of research we've opened up on economic stability and mobility. Um, we know well that Tennessee is one of the poorest states in the country, and we are really about digging into the issues that could help us change that and move the needle in the right direction in Tennessee. Medical debt, we've done a lot of health policy work, and medical debt kind of crosses the divide between both health policy and this new area of economic mobility and stability. So that's really why. Okay. Um, top findings. What are, what are the main takeaways from this? Okay. So I have five. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear them. First, uh, medical debt is surprisingly common in Tennessee. About one in four Tennesseans have medical debt on their credit history. That's the 10th highest rate in the country. Um, two, it's uh, common across most socioeconomic and demographic groups. Um, obviously a little more common among some groups than others, but still common across most types of Tennesseans. Um, three, it is uh uh, it's unique from other types of debt um, in quite a few ways, but primarily because of the unique circumstances that people could find themselves with medical debt. Often it's circumstances that people have a hard time predicting or controlling. Um, fourth, medical debt can really have far-reaching implications for people's economic security and mobility, their access to health care, and, and even their health outcomes. And then finally, um, there are things that can be done about it using state public policy. So I wanted to, to follow up on, on one of these. You guys produce a map that is essentially, it looks at each county in the state and says what percentage of the, the uh, county has medical debt, essentially. I thought one of the, the more interesting parts of that was what uh, you look at the, the the counties with the lowest. Williamson County is number one with 10%. Shelby County, 18%. That's the second lowest. Uh, I, I thought that was an intriguing finding. I, I, I didn't expect Shelby County to be that low. Um, and then Davidson County is not even in the top five. Uh, on the other side, Lake County has the highest percentage at 43%, uh, followed by Bledsoe County with 38%. What's behind that? I mean, why why are we seeing such vast differences uh, county to county? It's a really great question. Actually, in the third paper in this series, we looked at county-level characteristics to see what was associated with having higher rates of medical debt in the county. So really, those community-level factors, not the individual-level factors. Some things didn't really show up as making much of a difference, which we were kind of surprised by. So things like um, levels of income, and, and that might have to do with access to health insurance. So maybe you have a county that is a very low-income county, but you have a lot of folks there that are on TenCare, the state's Medicaid program, so maybe they're not accruing medical debt in the same kinds of ways. So there are some things there that kind of defy logic, but if you dig a little deeper, it makes sense. Um, what we did find is that Tennessee counties that had those higher rates of medical debt were more likely to have um, higher rates of uninsured individuals um, and uh, higher rates of auto loan delinquencies, which was kind of interesting, and higher rates 
needs of payday lenders per capita. And those were really the three things that stood out. It wasn't other things that, that you might guess. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the uninsured rates, that's very logical. That makes sense. But the others were a little more surprising. Um, I think the reason why the mix there is kind of surprising is because of all the different ways that people can find themselves with medical debt. So it's not really a uniform problem. Um, And so that's why, you know, you might find this interesting mix of counties um, sort of in the bottom, Mm -hmm. you know, very rarely would you find Williamson County and Shelby County kind of having similarities um, when you look at things like this. Hmm. So what are some of the proposals that you all are offering uh, legislators here in Tennessee, certainly, um, to address this issue? Because as you've you've noted, this is an issue that that doesn't just affect low income people, but it, it is an issue that would affect people across the board here in the state. So we took a very uh, comprehensive look at the problem. We identified 12 individual policy levers that policymakers could tap into. Um, And we do point out that there really is no silver bullet for this issue because people can find themselves with medical debt for so many different reasons. That means it's going to take a lot of different policy levers to actually take care of the comprehensive problem. But we sort of divided it into three buckets, um, kind of our upstream options, which are preventing medical debt from ever happening to begin with. Um, Midstream options, which is helping people better manage medical bills that maybe they didn't expect or they can't afford. And then downstream options, which is really mitigating the negative effects of medical debt. So what are some of those? Great. So on the prevention front, uh, we identify three. One is surprise billing, which is an issue that's gotten a lot of state and national attention. That's when you go to an in-network facility or perhaps um, an emergency and you take an ambulance and a provider that works on you or the ambulance ends up being out of network and you didn't expect that to happen. Um, Second is expanding um, enrollment in different health insurance coverage options. And then the third is finding ways to reduce out-of-pocket healthcare spending. So, for example, on surprise billing, what could the General Assembly in Tennessee have to do with that? Like, what is an example of some type of legislation they could introduce that would address that? So there's a lot of different ways that they could go about doing it. Um, they could look at the insurance front and sort of regulate what insurance companies do, mandate specific types of payments to out-of-network providers, and then bar those providers from billing the patient any more than what the insurance company um, pays them. That runs into some challenges because there are um, a pretty big subset of plans that can't be regulated at the state level. They can only be regulated at the federal level. Um, There has been some research that has come out um, of ways that states can maybe get around some of that, and that would be regulating how hospitals contract with um, the providers that work in their hospitals, um, requiring perhaps that those providers um, be in network, uh, enter into contract negotiations with health insurance companies. So really it's regulation on that like contract front between the providers and the insurance companies versus regulating um, the insurance companies themselves. On the back end, uh, could you imagine a scenario where lawmakers might pass a bill that says, hey, hospitals can't serve as debt collectors as well? Um, There was that story out of uh, Memphis a a couple Mm -hmm. months back that essentially found that so many of these patients essentially were just, you know, being uh, billed 
an insurmountable amount of money, but also facing debt collection and, and literally going mm-hmm. to court for that collection. Yeah, so we have a lot of information on that in this report as well. Um, we actually dug into the Shelby County data just a little bit as well, um, kind of when we were working on that was before that story came out. But um, there are already some federal requirements around what nonprofit hospitals are supposed to do in terms of providing charity care, the steps they're supposed to take before they enter into what's called extraordinary collection actions, which would be things like taking folks to court over debt. Um, The thing about it is those things are not necessarily um, very well defined or very specifically defined in federal law and federal regulation. For the most part, it's enforced by the IRS because it's associated with the hospital's nonprofit status. Um, Just because of the availability of data from court system to court system in Tennessee, because most of these are happening in happening in general sessions court, which are local courts, um, it's really hard to get a grasp of how common the practice is from county to county, from hospital to hospital. Um, so it's hard to say how much of a, a problem that is in Tennessee mm-hmm. and and how soon the hospitals might be resorting to taking those actions. I mean, hospitals are businesses, even when they're nonprofit, they're trying to get their bottom lines to work, but it's hard to really assess how much of an issue that might be in Tennessee and how much it varies across the state. Um, so that's something that we talk about in the report is maybe just trying to get a handle on how much this is happening across the state. And, and if it is happening to a degree that's troubling to lawmakers, makers, then, then perhaps they could kind of step in, fill in those federal laws with um, state laws. There's some precedent there because those federal laws exist already. And, and so maybe that's an area that state policymakers could could look at. We were actually surprised at how scattered the data was. Um, generally, when we take take on a new project, we're looking statewide, look at all the data, then break it down by county if we can. And this one, the data was just so scattered, it was it was surprising. And what are a few of those midstream and downstream solutions you all are suggesting? Um, So in that kind of management bucket of midstream, that's where we have the provider billing. So that might be helping people access a payment plan or a charity care financial assistance policy before a hospital maybe resorts to debt collection actions or or takes an individual to court. Um, Some of the other things are sort of not really specific to medical debt per se, but really more about helping people manage manage unexpected expenses. Um, One is maybe creating some sort of incentive for people to set aside money for a rainy day. We came across some really interesting data points. Uh, Apparently, according to a 2017 survey, about 44% of Tennesseans had not saved anything for an emergency or rainy day. Um, A separate national survey in 2018 found that about 39% of adults would have trouble um, paying for an unexpected expense of $400 or more, which is not very much money. So people just don't have extra money sitting around to deal with these unexpected expenses. Um, On a related note is uh, providing better access to affordable small dollar loans. So we have a lot of payday lending options in Tennessee, flex loans, things like that. Um, Those certainly fill a need for people, but they can be very expensive. They can lead to cycles of taking out these loans. And then um, the final piece in that management midstream bucket is financial capability services. So these are like one-on-one financial counseling. You've got some debt that you can't deal with. You go to a counselor and they help you deal with the hospital, um, maybe deal with debt collectors, set up payment plans, things like that. Well, 
I know you don't write these reports for political purposes. Mm -hmm. They probably will be received in some political sense. Democrats most likely will use this as an opportunity to once again say this is why the state needs to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I would anticipate Republicans and possibly the governor saying this is why the state's health care industry is just too expensive. It's exorbitant costs. We need to work on that long term project. Um, can you address any of those those two things through some of this, the, the findings that you have? Or, or is this just the findings are what they are and let the politicians kind of handle it how they will? We take very seriously that we are a nonpartisan organization. Um, so, for example, our staff and our board are bipartisan. They come from a wide range of political perspectives. Um, we joke that we couldn't agree on a political agenda or a legislative agenda if we tried because of that diversity. But from that comes, I think, rigorous honesty and rigorous analysis around these are the facts. And you can bring your different political lens to that and use these facts how you would like. Um, but we really try to stay out of that. So. As you said, you know, we'll lay out the facts and we'll lay out the limitations of any analysis. We'll lay out where the areas are gray and where it's more black and white and, and let the political folks take that where they may. But ob objectively, do you all have any sense of if um, expanding Medicaid would help this this population of, of people you're looking at who have medical debt? Well, in our country, gaining access to the healthcare system, you know, health insurance is a big part of that. So we say in our policy options that having more people with access to coverage would help with that. Now that can look like Medicaid expansion, that can look like other ways, you know, applying for an ACA marketplace plan. You know, there are a lot of different ways to get there and that's where your political views will come in and, sure. and, and dictate what you think about that. And issue. on the other hand, I and I haven't read the full report, I've read the summary, but it didn't look like, and maybe this was in there, it didn't look like the cost of care was really one of the the issues you all talked about. So what, what Joel was referencing with with the state, is that one of those issues? We do talk about cost of care a bit. Obviously, if we knew how to bring down the cost of health care, um, we would all... That's I a whole know. new study. <laughs> Be you, billionaires. Well, now that you have time, you can get on that. <laughs> yeah, so, ne next study. Yeah, so uh, the, the thing that we talked about more was really about the the out-of-pocket cost of health care. And we did talk about how, sh you know, the state could potentially step in and kind of build on the Affordable Care Act, which places out-of-pocket cost limits um, for people in marketplace plans and things like that. But, you know, just the economics of the way health insurance works, if you're not actually bringing down the underlying cost of health insurance, you're just going to be shifting those costs to the premiums or perhaps to other people, um, to other people in the plan. Um, so we do talk a little bit about transparency, cost transparency measures, because hypothetically, you know, if folks had better access to cost information before they actually get the care, um, if they're in a situation where they can do that, perhaps they could manage their costs down a bit by doing that. And so we review the evidence on that. It's been pretty mixed um, experiments in other states, and it's really important how it's structured, how the information is given into people, the incentives for the person to actually use the information and all of that. So we do try to get at it. We don't get at bringing down underlying costs of, of health care. That's just such a big question that it's it's really difficult to um, tackle it in this context. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that even though this report is quite a few pages long, um, this is really the beginning of a conversation. It's it's not even, I mean, there's so much more to say and so much more analysis to do, um, but really, this is a beginning. This is a 30 
30 plus page report. How long did this take to put together? I mean, it sounds like you're working with a lot of different systems and a lot of oh, different yeah. information that hasn't been collected per se. Uh, how long did this take? Um, a solid year. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Is there is there any state that you all have identified that has really been able to do something meaningful at the, the government level to address the issue? No, but that's a great idea for the next part of the series. <laughs> I mean, in each of the options, we do point out some things that other states are doing. Again, it's just such a multifaceted issue um, that it is hard to say this is the one thing that would make the biggest difference. Another issue is the data just aren't good enough to tell us, okay, 50% of the people that have medical debt have it because of X and 40% have it because of Y. Um, it's just not rich enough for that. Um, so we're kind of working with the complexity of the issue and the limitations of the data itself that tell us about the problem. If listeners want to read more about the report, where can they find that? Uh, everything we do is on our website, uh, uh, sycamoreinstitutetn.org, um, and you can download all the reports in full. We also like to really talk about this stuff. We don't want to be the kind of think tank that just pushes out white papers, and that's the end of it. So that's why we say yes to coming to talk to you on October 29th. We're going to do an event in Nashville where we're, we have a panel. The Aspen Institute's going to be here. We have a judge coming from, from Hamilton County, um, and we're going to talk about these issues. And we won't get to the end and say, here's the answer, but I think surfacing some of the, the problems in a clearer way and then surfacing some of the solutions is, is a beginning. And where and what time is that panel? It's going to be at Belmont at 5.30 is when we start and it'll go for about an hour and a half. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on. We appreciate hearing your perspective and learning more about the report. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And as we look forward to the next week of uh, Grand Divisions, this is going to be, we're going to play right now a little clip of uh, a two-part episode that we will begin airing next Tuesday uh, on Operation Rocky Top. Again, we've been talking about it uh, a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but it's the 1980s uh, political scandal that really brought down a, a handful of state government officials, uh, lawmakers, bingo operators, and it's essentially all about uh, an illegal bingo scheme. So again, here's a little teaser. Tune in next Tuesday, and that's part one of a two-part episode that we will begin airing. This is a story that really has all the intrigue uh, of a mafia movie, except instead of being set in the you know the boroughs of New York City, it's set in the hills of Tennessee, and instead of having Brooklyn accents, it's you know the Southern drawl. But we certainly had information that the legislators were being corrupted. He said something to the effect that some of the members we support like their money all at election time, and some of them like it, you know, kind of spread out throughout the year. And that's when the red light went off. One of the things that the legislature decided to do was to try to cover up this vice of gambling with a virtue, which was charity. We started understanding that this wasn't about charity, this was about a really big time gambling operation. There were uh, allegations about people being threatened, about a, a kidnapping even. Uh, there were rumors about a, a hit list, uh, even an undercover FBI agent. At the end of the night, the operators walking out with garbage bags filled with cash. There were virtually no limits or restrictions on campaign contribution. 
he handed me a credit card and said, well, I'd like to join you, but I can't, you know, have a meal on me. People get cocky, they get sloppy, they they start to feel entitled. And, and so what would have been unthinkable in a different environment, suddenly some people are willing to consider. And for those of you who have been following along with Tennesseans' coverage of the state's attempt to obtain a block grant for its Medicaid program, this is the final week of public comments um, to be submitted to the state. So they, there's been a 30-day period of uh, people in the state to submit their input, their feedback on the proposal to TennCare. And this is the last week for that. Friday is the final day. And there are two more public hearings scheduled for this week. Uh, one is today, Tuesday, in Memphis at 1.30, I believe, and the other is on Wednesday in Chattanooga. Uh, That's at 2 o'clock at the downtown branch of the Chattanooga Public Library. Those were add-ons. The the state had originally only scheduled three public hearings, um, Nashville, Knoxville, and Jackson, um, received some pushback for not having one in Memphis where there are the most 10 care uh, members in one area, um, and then also added on a Chattanooga one. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Again, a reminder, next week's episode and the following week's episode will be all about Operation Rocky Top. Uh, Tune in and you will be able to hear this unbelievable story of corruption with players directly involved. Uh, As always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.